Dan Doktoroff was deputy mayor of New York City for economic development and rebuilding under Michael Bloomberg, taking office right after 9-11. After that, he was the CEO and president of Bloomberg LP, the leading provider of news to the global financial community. He is now the CEO of Sidewalk Labs, an urban innovation company he founded in partnership with Google that develops products, services, and platforms to help make cities become more efficient. He recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the path to recovery in New York City, which he discusses today. Let's listen in. Uh, well, I welcome you all. Uh, I welcome Dan Doktoroff, who's a great favor of mine, who I've known since he was an analyst of Lehman Brothers. Uh, he, as you know, was deputy mayor under uh, Mike Bloomberg. Uh, they took over right after 9-11, faced a real crisis in New York, did a great job bringing it back. Uh, Dan is now uh, the CEO of Sidewalk, which is a company that's Alphabet, which is in the uh, business of really re- reinventing cities. Uh, and uh, he's a, Dan's a great thinker, a, a great philanthropist. He also is a CEO of The Shed, which is a major cultural project uh, in, in New York, in the Hudson Yards. Uh, he's got great experience. He wrote an editorial on uh, April 15th in the New York Times, which is very interesting. We we're talking about how you have to rethink a lot of different issues. So I'm uh, pleased to introduce Dan and we'll just let him talk. Dan? Thanks, Peter. Um, and I should point out that uh, it's very fortuitous that it's, it's Peter hosting this because uh, probably everybody over the course of my career, Peter um, has had the biggest impact of of anyone, including convincing me because he'd had the same job about 20 years before uh, to actually be deputy mayor to Mike Bloomberg. So um, I, I, I have to really thank Peter for much of my career. He also hired me at, uh, at Lehman Brothers as well. In any event, um, you know what, what I thought I would just talk for a couple minutes and open it up. Uh, I think it's, it's fair to say our cities um, and New York probably being most notably are going to undergo a remarkable crisis as a result of COVID-19. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, on some level, um, a pandemic that disproportionately affects cities because of density is an attack on density itself um, and on the whole notion of city life. And that makes this on some level a much more complicated um, thing to recover from than say 9-11 was or a traditional financial crisis, panic uh, or bust. Uh, Now, all that said, um, I am an incredible optimist Uh, I, as Peter said, came into City Hall three and a half months after 9-11 when people um, said that New York would never recover, that we would return to the bad old days of the 1970s. It didn't happen. Um, New York itself has suffered from 10 financial panics, busts, uh, or deep recessions um, in the 200 years since it's been a financial center. And if you go back and read the histories of each one of those at the depths of it, people said, you know, the city would be changed forever. Um, and in fact, in each case, um, it did recover. It went on to becoming um, better or greater than ever in each case. Um, the length of time, the way in which that actually occurred um, were different depending upon leadership, depending upon the moment. Um, but it always did recover, and I suspect that all of the prognostications of, of doom will be proven to be wrong this time. That doesn't mean, though, that you know we have to just sort of sit back and wait for that to happen. And um, I think there's a couple of things that I would I would point out. First is is that it is going to be critical to establish. Um, a foundation for the recovery. Um, to some extent, the, after 9-11, the foundation for the recovery had actually been laid um, by um, the severe drop in crime before 9-11. People felt that New York was safe. It had actually become 
the largest, um, safest, the safest large city in America um, before 9-11. Um, that's not to say, I said, we didn't do things in the immediate aftermath of, of, of 9-11 to demonstrate that it was safe things. In some cases that were some symbolic, like we had the World Economic Forum in New York at the end of January of 2002 to demonstrate you know, to world leaders and the media that followed them that it was safe to come back to New York. Uh, five days before the first anniversary of 9-11, when we knew um, the media was going to be plastered with images of planes flying into buildings and uh, the destruction that followed, uh, we held a concert uh, with the NFL, actually, um, in Times Square for 500,000 people, again, to counteract sort of the perception that New York had been, the whole of New York had been damaged, that people were still in mourning. Um, and so symbol sim symbolism can actually matter, but what, what matters more is substance and building off of the foundation that you've established for New York and for other cities going forward where density is, in fact, the, um, the fear, um, New York's going to have to become a leader in public health. And whether that is hygiene and very visible forms of hygiene, preparedness, connectedness, how it uses technology um, to uh, test and trace, for example, um, if we cannot establish ourselves as a global leader in public health, the recovery will be that much more difficult. The, the broader point, though, is that, you know, what we certainly saw after 9-11 um, is that um, these, a crisis can be a real opportunity to galvanize people, hopefully behind strong leadership, um, that and to really um, reset sort of what where what the city strategy actually is. Um, as as Peter knows very well, um, you know before 9/11, um, New York was you know basically um, trapped in a nostalgia for its historic industrial base, leaving enormous amounts of the city um, unplanned for. Um, basically the waterfront all over the city um, was vacant or decrepit um, because people didn't want to recognize the fact that um, the world had changed. In fact, New York had gone from a million manufacturing jobs after World War II to 125,000 of them by 2001, and that we had to reposition the economy of the city um, for the 21st century. And 9-11, which said galvanized people to make the city better than ever, was the vehicle, the catalyst by which we actually rethought the economic model for New York and enable us to do things in a historically hard to get things done city in a record period of time. Um, and so all over the city, you see sort of significant change. Well, was very interesting before uh, the coronavirus struck was that it was really clear that the growth model that we had deployed um, after 9-11 had run out of steam. You saw that a year ago with the defeat of the Amazon headquarters. Um, you have seen it over the course of the last year. Um, in a number of other things like the defeats of rezonings that would have added capacity for housing uh, or expanded kind of tax base. Um, and so the growth model is under attack. And what people actually um, are, are want in New York, at least enough of them, is a different model of growth. They want inclusive growth. They want sustainable growth. They want um, they now want resilient growth. And there is no actual urban model for inclusive, sustainable, um, and resilient growth. Um, there is a sort of this, this tension between sort of growth and inclusion um, that 
is ultimately incredibly harmful um, if you can't resolve it. Because at the end of the day, if there's one rule for managing a city, it's that growth is critical. Because, you know, as we operated under the assumption that we wanted to stimulate what we call the virtuous cycle of the successful city, which is if you grow in terms of the number of residents, visitors, and jobs, the incremental revenue that that produces can be reinvested back in quality of life, which then attracts more people, generating more revenue and perpetuating the cycle. To the extent that that cycle doesn't operate, um, then you, you cannot count on sort of continuing improvements in quality of life. In fact, you tend to go into reverse. Uh, people sometimes forget that the tremendous progress made in cities is not preordained. Um, the progress we've made over the last 25 years and that in the 1970s in New York, um, we actually lost 10% of our population. We lost 800,000 people. And it took 25 years to actually get them all back. And so we've got this incredible social and political pressure right now um, to limit growth in part because of concerns about fairness and gentrification um, and inequality, um, which is resulting in the rejection of growth, which ultimately um, yield sort of this vicious cycle rather than the virtuous cycle. But it, so in order to satisfy those political and social demands, we are going to have to develop a new model. I said a model of inclusive growth, a model that recognizes if you really want to be progressive, um, you also have to be prosperous. And, you know, something that people often don't acknowledge, uh, particularly on the far left, but if you want to be progressive, you've got to be prosperous. So how do you develop that new model? And that, I think, is really the question for our time. It's not just a question for New York. It's a question, I think, more broadly um, for the country. It's certainly a question for every successful um, urban center. Um, one of the my beliefs is, is that a critical component of that strategy has to be around innovation. Um, if you really think about our cities, they haven't changed a whole lot over the last hundred years. We get our water the same way. Um, we get our power generally the same way. We move around exactly the same way. Um, we, our buildings are built the same way. Um, and we live in apartments in almost the same way. Um, you contrast that last 80 to 100 years um, with say the same period beforehand and our cities changed radically and they changed radically in part because of innovation. Uh, you know, if you think back to like the late 1800s, the fastest vehicle um, was pulled by a horse the streets were lit by kerosene. The tallest building might have been 10 stories. There was manure. The, the sanitary systems were horrible. Because of major innovations, typically in those cases driven by the electric grid and then the automobile, our cities changed radically. What is so interesting about the moment today is that we actually have a set of innovations um, that have not yet really been integrated into the physical environment that have the opportunity, and this will not happen overnight, but have the opportunity to radically change the way we live in cities, the way cities function, um, that can meaningfully reduce costs, um, that can make it more convenient to move around, that can make our cities dramatically more environmentally friendly, while at the same time generating growth. And so while it's not the complete solution and there will be all sorts of innovation that's not technological, but it'll have to be regulatory and structural and other things, we actually do have an opportunity to think differently 
about the way our cities function, the way our society functions, in which innovation will play a significant role. Um, I could give you lots of examples, and maybe as we throw it open to, to questions, um, we can uh, talk more specifically about them. Then the key point is less what the innovations are right now than the fact that we really are going to have to, in order to generate that growth, given those social and political pressures that I think most of us would acknowledge are real and need to be addressed, the growth model is in fact gonna have to change. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that. And I think maybe we can just throw it open either Peter, I don't know if you wanna moderate or um, I can just take questions, but uh, however you wanna do it. Well, I think anybody wants to ask a question, I'll ask you a question to begin with. So uh, you've, uh, you're building or, or in the process of building a, um, uh, a new city in Toronto. What have you? What What are the most applicable things you've learned there? That, except that Canadians are different from Americans. But what have you learned that Canadians really... are really different than Americans? <laughs> and by the way, one of the big differences is they don't particularly like Americans coming in and invading their turf. But uh, hopefully that doesn't get repeated. The um, the uh, no, no, yeah. I mean, look, what, what we have learned is innovating in public is hard. Um, and we're trying to innovate across basically every dimension of urban life, right? Rethink the way buildings are built, um, rethink sort of the way energy is actually provided, and do it in a, in a way and still make money at it. And so the governmental institutions are typically not well suited. Now that's not surprising. If you think back to the previous kind of urban technology revolutions, namely the steam engine in the early part of the 19th century, the electric grid in the later part of the 19th century, the automobile in the early part of the 20th century, it's not like they got, they got adopted uh, or integrated into the physical environment overnight. They didn't. They took a generation or more, and we're trying to innovate on so many different levels that the political structure is is really um, trying to figure out how to adapt to that. Our goal is to set an example for other places and at the same time create a sustainable business for ourselves. Uh, but the first thing I would say is innovating in public, particularly the integration of innovation into the physical environment is hard. The good news is, is there are a whole set of approaches that we think can radically um, change um, the curve in terms of things like affordability. Uh, so for example, um, we are designing 30 plus story buildings where the structure is made out of mass timber, it's wood. Okay, you'd say wood, you know, how, how does that make sense? Isn't that going to all burn down? That's why we stopped building tall buildings out of wood. So there's a, a new approach to wood, which involves the lamination of it that actually makes it more fire resistant than steel and roughly equal to concrete. It's also dramatically more sustainable for lots of reasons. Um, wood is, believe it or not, when it is prepared this way, uh, much stronger per per pound, if you will, per ton than steel or concrete. So deliveries to the site. But more importantly, it can be manipulated with machines. And we have designed an approach that uses uh, factory automation, where we believe we could literally lower the cost of building buildings by about 20% and at the same time, reduce the time to construct by about a third. Um, now, if you could actually do that, then a lot of that excess margin in effect can be repurposed back into affordability, which is critical. So said, there's literally in this thing we're planning about four dozen innovations across sort of every aspect of urban life um, some of them won't succeed. Some of them will. And hopefully they'll get copied in other places. Uh, let's take questions. Uh, um, Ms. York, do you have a question? Will York? I, um, I was thinking as you were speaking, and thank you, um, 
but uh, regulation, I'm wondering if we, instead of using the word regulation or rezoning, we can use words such as best practices or something along those lines, something that's a best practice seems so much more enticing. And can you do growth in the public sphere by, um, it's obviously not as simple as just changing words, but regulation has such a downer consideration, but best practices, people want to go forward and know that best practices will evolve in time. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you're interacting yeah. with uh, building codes and regulation and maybe if a new new set of world words could be helpful in our dialogue. You know, I think I think it's, you know, it's funny you say that about a new set of words, because um, I think we believe that the kind of nomenclature for this new world world has not been invented yet and it will actually be necessary but it has to be something that is grounded enough in what people understand in order to get them to even move incrementally um, so we've spent a lot of time not always successfully i should point out trying to think about sort of new models of communicating um, but still anchored in what people actually understand Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, when you talk about best practices, one of the hypotheses underlying kind of our approach is that, you know, what we hope to see is a lot of what we're doing replicated in other mm -hmm. places. Cities typically need other place somewhere else to point to, to have the courage to actually go ahead and innovate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was struck by this when I was deputy mayor and uh, we did the High Line. Um, and, you know, within a year of the High Line, it was clear it was like a huge success. And there were 36 High Lines under development around the world within a year, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, really what it was about was about adaptive reuse of old mm -hmm. infrastructure, about public-private partnerships. All the first sets of high lines were built on abandoned rail, you know, um, railways or uh, freight lines or something. Within two or three years, they, it was about the principles. It was mm -hmm. about kind of how do you use the same lessons and people were doing things under highways and you know, just using whatever old stuff they could, they thought they could repurpose into something of value. So cities are going to eventually, you know, have courage, they'll have the courage to adapt, but they need to see examples. And so your notion of best practice or just practices at all um, that are successful um, is really important to pushing this sort of urban technology revolution, which, as I said, I think is really important. Me too. Thinking about inclusivity and sustainability and resiliency while still enabling growth. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Are there other questions? I have a question. So since we're a basic group that looks at Washington, so we're going to have an infrastructure bill. So what would what what would be the most helpful thing to cities in an infrastructure bill? Which of the problem solvers of problem solvers be focusing on? Um, well, you know, I, I think one of the ideas that should be incorporated in the infrastructure bill is like some kind of innovative infrastructure initiative. Um, you know, in the defense industry, we have DARPA. You know, we have something similar for energy, um, where the federal government is actually encouraging investment in innovation. And I think in this case, encouraging the private sector to innovate as well. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, there's, there's certainly greater expense to innovation upfront, um, but thinking about new ways of doing things. So we're considering creating a company that um, will focus on uh, autonomous vehicle laneways, right? So that's a very different, potentially a very different, much cheaper form of mass transit. We're not going to see autonomous vehicles just roaming all the streets for a while in most places, particularly in dense, complicated urban environments. But that doesn't mean we can't do them 
in ways that actually act as a substitute for mass transit. But we need the infrastructure, and no one yet is really thinking about sort of on an integrated basis, the infrastructure to make that possible. So I think, for example, the federal government could provide incentives or funding in order to accelerate um, a lot of this innovation um, in a material way. In the, in the Obama administration, there was a whole initiative on smart cities, and they laid out a bunch of these different ideas, uh, but there was never any action and never any follow-up. I think we're at the moment now with the technology that with a push from federal government, um, we could see a rapid acceleration of innovative um, development of next generation infrastructure. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to kind of um, transportation or mobility from a sustainability perspective. You know, I think we can probably get with some assistance to truly affordable electrification, um, not reliant on natural gas. Um, and so that, again, is something that from a climate change perspective could be a huge benefit. The other thing I would say about kind of infrastructure and innovative infrastructure um, I have a hypothesis. I've never actually done, you know, hired an economist to prove it, but that, you know, there's this whole view that um, was very popular a few years ago that sort of our days of big increases in productivity are behind us. That if you look, despite sort of the internet and the computer era, that over the last 25 years, productivity has declined. A hypothesis, I think, which is really worth kind of attempting to demonstrate, because I think anecdotally it has been true, is that when you actually do integrate innovation into the physical environment, um, you tend to see very, very big increases in productivity. Um, and I suspect in our urban environments, you could, with in smart investments in next generation infrastructure, you could sort of ignite on some level sort of a job creating machine, which would also be kind of part of this innovative growth agenda. It's good ideas. Uh, Gene Sykes, you had a question? Uh, yes, thanks. Dan, I have a question for you. Hey, Gene. It relates to the, uh, the, um, the digital divide, which is uh, perhaps more evident now because all the kids are home, many kids who don't have uh, the, the sort of access to broadband that their classmates might have or kids in better resource neighborhoods might have uh, potentially fall behind. How, how do you think about innovation addressing the digital divide? And I say that because I've, I've had a number of discussions myself with people who are technology providers, infrastructure providers, or, or uh, innovators. And um, you know the government has often tried to subsidize the development of infrastructure or to motivate uh, providers to, to give subsidies to uh, help them build things. And then it always takes too long and there are a lot of arguments about what the right technology is. Uh, but there are some people who say, well, if you, if you provided the subsidies the other way around, so in effect, you uh, gave the subsidies directly to the consumer and allowed the consumer to buy services, uh, broadband services, for example, at a, at a um, lower rate, especially if the services are services that have high capacity. I'm interested in your perspective on the digital divide and whether we've really ever addressed it the right way, or we keep thinking about it the wrong way and taking too long to try to do something about it. Well, I mean, the digital divide, we certainly have not addressed it the right way because it's apparent that a, you know, tiny percentage of a very low percentage of lower income people actually have access to broadband. Um, you know, one of the companies that Sidewalk, Act, Sidewalk Labs actually invested in, it's a company that was doing these Wi-Fi kiosks in New York, um, and completely privately funded. By the way, it's been really difficult and, um, you know, it, financially it has not yet worked out. What was amazing is with like 150 kiosks in the Bronx, 29% of all Bronx children actually got Wi-Fi access 
from one of these 150 kiosks, which is pathetic, right? It's horrible. In and Los so Angeles, the uh, public libraries have kept their Wi-Fi on. So what's happened is kids from poor neighborhoods are actually flustering in the parking lots during the stay-at-home orders in order to do exactly. their, uh, their schoolwork. Yeah. So, so, you know, this was a privately funded thing. I said, it's kind of not gotten where we want it to go, but I don't think privately funded initiatives will necessarily be there. I think we need the infrastructure work. We did it. And you probably know a lot more about this than I did with the telephones, right. By providing all sorts of incentives um, or requirements actually to, at that point, basically, you know, AT&T um, and, or, um, and then the local bells. Um, I suspect something similar is going to be required that it's, you know, going to require a kind of massive federal investment, um, whether that can be combined with incentives for individuals to, I, I don't know, I've never really looked at it, but, you know, it, it strikes me that access to broadband in kind of the world we live in today should be a fundamental right. And therefore, government ultimately has to take responsibility for providing it. What the cheapest form for actually ensuring that you have universal access is, I honestly don't know. Right. Ron Reganini. Reganini. Uh, yes. Sorry. Hi, Dan. Uh, thank you. Hey. I missed the Bloomberg administration. I'm calling from about 10 miles outside of the city right now, and I'm worried about it. But like you, I agree. The resiliency of New York, I, I'm counting on. My question is, is this. Have you given some thought to how do we get it started? The first couple of steps where it'd be the most. Thoughts on that? Well, as I said, I think step number one is establishing the foundation. Um, to make people feel comfortable with density. And that really is becoming a leader in, in public health. Um, it's clear we were not successful through um, the pandemic. Um, and we, we as either as a city, certainly as a country, um, were not prepared um, on multiple levels. Um, the reality is, is many other very dense cities um, have actually been fine through this, right? Seoul is dramatically denser than New York is. Um, and, you know, it has managed through this extraordinarily well. Part of that was they had experience with SARS in the early 2000s and therefore were better prepared. Um, and hopefully we'll be, but I do believe in order to restore confidence in the nature of density, um, New York as the epicenter of this problem in the United States is going to have to work extraordinarily hard to demonstrate very visibly, you know, we should go out and hire thousands, particularly with the unemployment where it is literally tens of thousands of people and have them wiping down the subways okay, over the course. And part of that is, you know, substance. Part of it is really important symbolism, right? We're paying unemployment anyway, redirect it in some form to have a community effort to actually um, ensure the hygiene of New York. So well, well we we have the local Dan, we have the local groups in New York uh to do that. It's all it that that's a big question of competent leadership. I mean New York is has New York itself has the capability of doing that, as you suggest. Yeah, no, I th I think it does, but we have to make it an instant priority. The second the second thing though, a lot of this other stuff is longer term. But in the short term, we have to understand what the real impact on New York actually is. We don't know yet. We don't know how many people aren't going to come back. Um, we have no idea how this is actually going to play out over the course of the next year um, in terms of um, whether we're going to have a second wave of social distancing and more. Um, so we don't yet know that. Um, inevitably, um, there could be very significant 
short-term dislocations. Uh, after 9-11, the areas in lower Manhattan were basically abandoned, right? There were vacancy rates of 50%. Um, now, in that case, we got a lot of money from the federal government, and there is no way cities are going to make it through this without support from the federal government, right? The, the deficit New York is facing um, is, you know, enormous, just like we suffered after 9-11. Um, and you can see already they're starting to cut back on essential services, which, which accelerate that vicious cycle that we're very worried about. So we need federal government support, but incentives carefully targeted to bring people back actually work. You know, we got a lot of money, as I said, after 9-11 from the federal government, and we use them in a very targeted way to encourage economic activity. So we offered incentives for people to move back to lower Manhattan. And you think, you know, Battery Park City right across from the World Trade Center say, who'd ever want to move back to Battery Park City? We offered incentives to make it relatively inexpensive. They flooded back. Literally, it went from a 50% vacancy to like two in a matter of two months, right? So there's lots of things and we don't yet know exactly where we're gonna need that support, but we have to be aggressive in luring people back. Um, I do believe foundational of all of this, and I think you, you hit on something that's a, a concern at the city level, is leadership really matters, right? That, you know, one of the things that Rudy Giuliani, you know, for all he's become for those months, he was a great leader. On September 11th, he said, you know, we're going to make New York greater than ever, right? We're going to rebuild it. We're going to make it greater than ever. That galvanized people to work together to develop sort of a, get things done in a way they wouldn't have been able to get done. For all the success that the Bloomberg administration had, and you know, overall, I think we were very successful. As I said, foundational was the fact that people perceived the city was safe. By the way, symbolic things helped there too, but also sort of this notion that we were in it together enabled us to do things that people wouldn't have thought were possible before, but we did it pursuant to an actual plan, okay? A strategic plan for the city that really looked at the city's competitive strengths and weaknesses in the post 9-11 world, in the world in general, and developed a strategy, which we then pretty ruthlessly executed on. But the fact that people really wanted to make the city better than ever, um, it was um, uh, critical to the success that we actually had. Having an actual plan really matters. And I said, I think the plan that we need to have now has to be very different than the playbook that we used after 9-11 because of these social and political pressures for inclusion or equity or whatever. And I think, you know, what I've, I suggested in my op-ed is that we have a kind of coalition basically be formed to develop that agenda that basically gets handed to the next mayor. Um, you know, you'd hate not to wait, but I'm I'm worried that we we won't get there with this leadership right now. At the state level, it might be very different, but that's a complicated relationship. Thanks, Ed. Maxine Clark. How are you? Yes, I'm good. There you are. There you are. Um, I your investment in infrastructure is uh, we all think about three dimensional infrastructure, transportation the grid, all those things. But what about the the social infrastructure that could be innovated alongside of it? And how do you see that um, as important and possible in the world that we live in today? I think that's a, um, that is a harder thing for government to do. Um, on, first, certainly from an innovation perspective than physical infrastructure. Um, but not impossible. I think the foundation for using innovation um, to drive social infrastructure is sort of digital infrastructure. And so I think, again, coming back to Gene's question, 
that is really critical in order to connect people in lots of different ways. There are many tools that can be deployed to provide sort of that social kind of um, connectedness that I think is so important. We've explored lots of different ways of doing it, um, but the role of government, which is often to do what it needs to do to create the conditions for the private market to, to function, I think needs to be to provide the physical infrastructure necessary for the connectedness to actually um, to be possible. Now, you know, there's lots of other types of social infrastructure that do not require, um, uh, you know, technology, um, and that is being decimated in New York right now. Um, you know, I have a uh, my chief of staff in the city hall um, basically runs the YMCA. So you think about the YMCA. The YMCA provides all sorts of services for seniors. Um, for young children, um, for teens, par particularly in more disadvantaged communities, they get money from gyms, essentially, and by renting out rooms, uh, typically to, you know, people, younger people who are visiting New York. So their revenue mile has been completely decimated. And those services that they provide, they cannot provide because they rely on the profit. That is happening across the entire social services sector right now. Um, and um, we're going to have to find a way to rebuild that. And again, that is going to require money in the short term until their sources, and every one of these is different, but their sources of funding are, are restored in some form. That's a huge problem that we're only beginning to understand the magnitude of. Yeah, this is Peter Malkin. Question? Yep. Yep, hey, Peter. Peter. Hi. Uh, what was the government administration that permitted you to uh, do the kind of innovative work you're doing in Toronto? And what do you recommend that we do to get in a different, frankly, candidate for mayor who can provide the kind of leadership uh, that you think is important, essential? Well, I, I don't want to say in Toronto it has been um, easy. In fact, the city administration in Toronto, they have a weak mayor form of government. And so, you know, you have to deal with 25 council members, a city manager. Um, so no one's really in charge of the bureaucracy. Um, at in, in the Bloomberg administration, one of the things I think that made us successful um, to the extent we were was the way government was actually organized. Um, and so it was organized so that on kind of broad topic areas, um, people like me, deputy mayors, had the authority we needed. And then you had a mayor who delegated authority effectively and made decisions very quickly. Um, those are the key elements, the sort of coordination among the agencies that can be driven from City Hall um, in complicated projects with a mayor who makes decisions smartly and quickly. It's not particularly complicated, um, but it is the way I think it has to get done. Um, I assume, Peter, you would you would generally agree with that. The, yeah, and you and you were lucky. The board of estimate had disappeared by the time you got correct. There. Yeah, so we we had real authority. Now, the mayor today has that authority. You know how you exercise that authority really matters. In terms of um, you know how we ensure that um, a a a mayor gets elected in twenty twenty one who kind of understand sort of the broader um, inclusive growth agenda or that, you know, you've got to be prosperous to be progressive. Um, I think we've got to start now. We have to build that agenda. Um, and I would suggest there are probably ways of through independent expenditure committees of linking those two ideas um, spending on a candidate independently and the agenda of incentivizing the next mayor to be, the mayors to be, to adopt that sort of agenda. 
Well, on that, no, so it's a more complicated I'm gonna, story. I want to interrupt you. To, this is a good segue to move to Ray McGuire, who is, it is rumored, is interested in running for mayor. So, Ray. I saw, Ray, I saw Ray on the call somewhere. Ray, you have a question? Hi, hi, hi Peter. I, I would be remiss you? if I didn't acknowledge also that there are four of us on this uh, line who are at the same university together. So that's Dan and Gene and Will. So a lot of our classmates. Um, the question I have for you, Dan, the fundamental premise to your vision is inclusiveness. What the virus reflects is that is the exact opposite direction in which this city is headed. How do we think about a vision that is inclusive that today has to reverse our course? Well, I think that's the hard thing. It talks about what Gene talked about, the digital divide. There's social divide. There's digital divide. There's economic divide. There is a loss of Amazon. How in your vision would you include, as we move forward, how would you include inclusiveness? What's your vision of inclusiveness? Well, I think it has to be fundamental to it. Um, and um, and the, by the way, that's not to say that in the Bloomberg administration, we didn't think about and do those things. You know, we we created 165,000 units of affordable housing, basically housing 500,000 people, but we didn't do enough. And the demand for that now is greater. You know, at the end of the day, the trick is generating more revenue um, and then spending it in a smart way that gives opportunity and is fair to a broader swath of people. I think it is also about innovating, particularly around things like affordability. Um, the generating of more money is something that is really important because at the end of the day, if you can't generate the resources, you can't make the investments in inclusivity or fairness. And what you also don't wanna do, which makes this even harder, because you're a city and not a country, you can't put yourself in a meaningful competitive disadvantage relative to other places because jobs and people are mobile, especially now as we've seen in, you know, in, in this crisis, right? So you can't just like raise taxes on the rich um, and redistribute it to the, to the less fortunate because at the end of the day, those rich people can easily leave. And we're starting to see that already. By the way, the population of New York actually fell for the first time in about 30 years um, in 2018, indicating, by the way, that even before this, the vicious cycle may be in its early stages of actually happening. So we've got to generate more money. So we're going to have to be really creative. Um, for example, when we upzone things, this may be overly technical, um, at, we could dedicate, instead of just giving in a rezoning, the developers the benefit of the increased floor area ratio or density, we could dedicate a significant part of that increase um, to um, an affordable housing program. Okay, We do it in a minor way now. We could do that in a big way across the city. Um, there are lots of ways of generating um, revenue out of assets that may not even cost the city anything. You know, when we actually did the High Line, this is probably a story that's too detailed, but we had to get every single one of the 38 landowners who owned land underneath the High Line to agree, or else the railroad that owned the High Line wouldn't give it to the city, right? Every single one, when we came into office in 2002, was opposed to it. And we didn't have any money back in 2002. We had no money at all. We were facing, as I said, this huge deficit. So what did we do? We rezoned the uh, area, you know, underneath um, the, uh, above the high line. And then we rezoned the avenues to the west of it for, for residential. The only way though, that the owners of property along the avenues could build taller buildings was to buy um, the increased density or permission for density and transfer it over to those avenues. 
So essentially what we did and is we created money out of thin air and then created a market for that money. So there's, you know, if you're creative enough, there's lots of ways to generate revenue. Um, there's creative financing ways that people may in, in New York may know the Hudson Yards over on the West Side. You know, what made Hudson Yards possible was the extension of um, the subway into the area. Again, the city hadn't built a, hadn't built a subway line in 50 years um, because there's fights was always about just maintaining the system. And so we didn't have any money and we basically created the world's largest tax increment financing district in order to pay for it, which basically just borrowed money and only got the, the lenders only got paid back from the new taxes generated out of an otherwise desolate area. So if we don't generate the money, we can't do it, but we um, are, we can be very creative in the way we generate money. Uh, we only have about seven minutes left and we've got about five or six people who'd like to ask questions. So I'm going to see if we can do it quickly. Andrew Brickman, Andrew, did you have a question? Uh, um, yeah, I did. Um, uh, thanks, Peter. And um, thank you, Dan. Um, I know I know the your administration, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, was able to tackle a lot of tough issues. The, the one thing that continues to vex me, it's not a COVID issue, but um, the, the, the wealth gap is often highlighted in America, and I think it is exists and getting worse. But I, I really feel like um, you know, while redistribution can be a consideration and probably needed, um, it's the talent gap and it's the education gap that we've really got to address. And I, I'm just wondering what, if any, um, ideas that maybe the mayor couldn't get around to. But in our urban areas, in our, in our inner cities, we really, we, it, I, I don't think anyone of wealth or of means you know, likes the situation, they'd be willing to help it in any way they could. I mean, a lot of us benefited from a good public school education and everyone should have that benefit. How, how, how do we, I, I really feel like we, and we've got to train them for the current day. So I'm just curious of your thoughts. There's a lot of questions behind me, so um, you can keep it short. Yeah, well, it's a hard, hard one to keep short. Look, I, I think um, one of the things that we clearly have to focus on much more than we have in the past is workforce development. You know, we've focused a lot on improving graduation rates and they've gone up. I'm not sure we focused as much on preparedness for the work that actually may be available um, and connecting work and skills in the educational system to me would be one of the most important things that we actually have to do. We don't do a good job of that now. Kirk Jones. Uh, Paul, it's oh, Kirk, Kirk it's Jones. Kirk, yeah, it's good. Kirk James. Kirk James. Oh, I'm sorry, Kirk James. Sorry. Not Kirk. a problem at all. I just wondered, thank you so much, Dan. I just wondered, do you look internationally, there, there are cities around the world that are being built with kind of a futuristic approach. Is there anybody in particular that you look to internationally to collaborate with to get ideas? And if so, what is different about them? Um, we... I'd say if you, I mean, there's a lot that's going on in China, often much less than meets the eye. Um, and by the way, also often done without the privacy concerns that make it much harder to do in the United States or Canada or in Western Europe. So I don't typically look to those for much inspiration. And it's sort of a kind of, all-encompassing, integrated way. There is no good example right now. Uh, but there are cities and places that actually have managed to push things a lot further. Barcelona is a good example. They've had successive administrations that have focused on making Barcelona both more pedestrian friendly, which has all sorts of sustainability, but also technology friendly and created institutions in government um, that facilitate innovation in different ways. There are countries actually that have taken the lead um, in um, becoming dramatically more innovative 
Singapore is one. And for anyone who's ever dealt with Singapore, the quality of people in government, the planning that they do, uh, the willingness to thoughtfully experiment on things and then expand the experiments when they work is probably the best in the world. There's other places like Estonia, which have become real leaders in e-government, making government dramatically more efficient. Um, so there's there's pieces of models, um, but not really, maybe with the exception of Singapore, really a comprehensive one. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Uh, Ann Asher, she's back, I hear. Ann? Yes. I wish you would speak somewhat about what you see as the economic fallout from this disaster that we're living through. You can speak both about New York, the country, and the world. Wherever he you only has class. he only has three minutes, and that answer should be three days. <laughs> yeah, well, I, unfortunately, I don't think I have a crystal ball, and um, I think there are as many theories about that as probably there are people uh, to express them. Um, so, you know, look, tell me what the course of the disease is actually going to be, and I'll give you a forecast. I honestly can't predict that right now. Um, I do believe that for cities, particularly cities that have been more hard hit, the intermediate consequences are going to be quite significant. Um, and as I said, because this crisis attacks um, a very fundamental premise about life in cities, and therefore, um, I think we will see in the short term people leaving the city. Um, the whole notion of office space may have to be rethought. Um, the question of retail, which is so important to sort of the creating the street life of a city like New York, um, is inevitably going to change, is, had been changing, and this will accelerate it. So without fairly significant intervention and action, um, we uh, are looking at a very, very tough time. And then when you add to that the decline of um, the budget, sort of the financial base in the short term and the cuts that that's going to require, if those persist, um, the problem will be even worse. So that's why I also say federal assistance is going to be critical but more importantly, giving people a sense of confidence in the future is going to be absolutely essential. If you can take one more than Paul, Murad, Paul. Yeah, hi. On. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Dan, I had a question for you. What do you think is the role of the, um, what do you think is the role of the disruptive technologies like Uber, uh, Lyft, Airbnb on the cities and its future growth? And uh, did your views on this change from the time you were in the administration to your perspectives now of being in private business? You know, what's interesting is back in sort of the 2002 to 2008, there really weren't any disruptive technologies that had any sort of impact. They were not issues that I thought about candidly at all, um, other than maybe on the sustainability side of things. But, you know, Uber and Lyft didn't exist. Um, Airbnb. If it existed, it was like a couple guys in San Francisco uh, back then. I think in in all of those cases, the impact is has been um, really mixed. Um, you know, for many people, they're incredible sources of either income or convenience. Um, on the other hand, when you look at say Uber and Lyft and their impact on um, getting around in the city for everybody else, um, they're decidedly negative um, for now, um, although we don't have great data um, about that. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we can't find ways to manage them going forward um, in a different and better ways. Um, and, but, you know, like every technology, you know, it always holds out remarkable promise and there's upsides typically, and there's downsides. And the question is, can we catch up with the downsides and manage them more effectively um, in ways that kind of ensure that the upsides are much greater than the downsides? 
That's a that's a good note. Good question to end on, Dan. Thank you very much for a very informative hour. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for taking your time, Peter. Thank Good to thank see you. you. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And thank you all for joining. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your attention. As you heard Dan Doctoroff explain, New York City had to transform after 9-11. But he believes we need a much bigger transformation in the wake of this pandemic, even as cities develop new technologies and processes to improve hygiene and preparedness. Dr. Roth thinks we will need even more innovation to make cities more sustainable, affordable, and livable. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 